0: Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Jonathan. It is so good to see you all this morning. If you are a visitor or a regular attender or a member, I want you to know that I am so grateful that you have joined us today and that you have made a priority to be in the house of the Lord for worship this morning. It's such a gift to have the church and I'm grateful that we're able to meet today. Also, I want to say I missed you all terribly last week. However, I also want to say how grateful and how proud I am of Mike Scoggins for filling the pulpit last week. Uh, that young man did an amazing job preaching God's word. And we are so blessed as a church that God is calling men out of our church. And he is calling them to the preaching ministry. And he is giving us the blessing of seeing them being equipped. But I want you to know I missed you. While we were out, I was grateful that you afforded me the opportunity to go and to be with my extended family in Mississippi. And I was grateful to be with my family over the new year in Mississippi because it had been nearly a year since our family had all been together. And it was the first time that my brother and sister-in-law had met my five-month-old daughter, Mariah. And while we were there and spending time with family, and when you go see extended family, you spend every waking minute with them, right? I was reminded just how different... My brother and I are. Uh, we, we enjoy a lot of the same similar hobbies like hiking and camping and being in the outdoors. But other than that, even with our looks, I mean, we are completely different in every other way imaginable. But yet we're brothers. And we share a common last name and we share a common father and we share a common mother And then seeing how different I am than my brother calls me to think about my family now and our four kids and how they are all drastically different in many ways. And they all have different things that they enjoy and they all have unique personalities and unique quirks that sometimes get on each other's nerves, but they're different. But yet they share a common last name and a common father and a common mother. It's the same in the Christian family, isn't it? So we share a common family and we share a common name as Christian Christ follower and we share a common father. Yet God has created us all uniquely and diverse. Yet amidst our diversity, there's also a beautiful unity. So today I want us to begin a two-part sermon series looking at Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16 to discover how our unity is enriched by our diversity looking at four ways to maintain the unity that we are called to. Today, we'll just be in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, looking at the first two ways that we are to maintain the unity that we are called to. So if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, take it out and turn with me to the book of Ephesians. To so Paul, through the first three chapters of this book of Ephesians, he's been unfolding to his readers the eternal purposes of God being worked out throughout history. That through Jesus Christ, who died for sinners and was raised from death, is creating something entirely new. Uh, See, Paul sees an alienated humanity being reconciled. He sees a fractured humanity being united and a new humanity being created through the commonality that we all share in our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. So Paul now moves in chapter 4 on from the new society to the new standards which are expected of this new community. So let's pick up in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, with what Paul is saying here. And let's see what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul begins by saying, hey, I therefore, remember the first three chapters, remember what I've said, unfolding the eternal purposes of God being worked out throughout history, and then, hey, I've already reminded you of the purpose of which God has called you, the hope of your calling, and that it requires lives that are keeping with this new calling. So now, now that I've said that in chapters 1 through 3, and I've worked out the doctrinal part of this letter, now Paul is getting to the practical part of this letter. He's getting to the practical detail of how glory is to be given to God in the church. Paul refers to himself as a prisoner in verse 1. However, this is not the first time that we've seen Paul refer to himself as a prisoner, is it? In chapter 3, verse 1, Paul also called himself a prisoner of Jesus Christ on behalf of the Gentiles, saying he is Christ's prisoner for their sake. But in a different way, Paul here is saying that his imprisonment for the Lord here is something that he has in common with all other believers, that they too are fellow prisoners with the common confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. So what does this common imprisonment mean for all of those who are imprisoned, who are believers of Jesus Christ? Well, Paul says next, Hey, as fellow prisoners for the Lord, I urge you, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. I'm so grateful, like I said earlier, of Mike bringing the word last week. And through the text he preached in Colossians 1, 1-14, we saw Paul say something incredibly similar to the church of Colossae, that they may conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the Lord, telling them, hey, to bear fruit and to increase in their knowledge of the Lord, that we walk worthy by knowing Christ more and by looking like him every day. And Paul has the same frame of thought here when he's talking to the church in Ephesus, that we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So we've all been called to this worthy walk, right? And see, this new society which God has called and adopted us into has two major characteristics. And first, it is that we are one people, our oneness, like we'll see throughout this text that we look at today. Well, why was this important in Paul's day? Well, in Paul's day, remember, there were these cultural distinctions. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. And what Paul is saying here is this is no longer good news just for the Jew or no longer good news just for the Gentile. But he's saying this is good news of great joy for all people. And all people are adopted into one family and we have a oneness here. And the second characteristic of this new society is that it is to be a holy, to be a set-apart people. Of people who are distinct from the secular world, who are set apart, of people who belong to God. So therefore, our calling to a worthy walk is one set-apart people. So we are to walk together as one people, unified, who have been set apart to walk in the holiness of God. And as God's people, we must display and make visible our oneness and our holiness And we do this through displaying to a watching world and each other the unity that we have been given through Jesus Christ. We display the fact that, hey, my preferences are no longer primary, but displaying that we are set apart and that we are unified through our oneness in Jesus Christ. So continuing in this vein, Paul then gives four ways for us to maintain the unity that we are called to in verses 2 through 16 of Ephesians chapter 4. I want us just to look at the first two of those today, okay? So the first one is this. The first way that Paul tells us to maintain our Christian unity is that our Christian unity is maintained through the charity of our conduct. Look at verses 2 through 3 with me now. I'll pick up a little bit in verse 1, but it says this in verses 2 through 3. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which you have been called with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So through verses 2 through 3, Paul is showing the characteristics of the worthy walk by offering five essential actions For Christian living in unity. And Paul's already prayed to God that these Christians would be rooted and grounded in love in 317. And now he makes an appeal that we see to it that we live a life of love. And I love what Mike said last week in his sermon that love is not a word. Love is not a feeling. But love is an action. And these are actions that Paul is calling believers to in order to live a life worthy of our calling. Paul begins with humility, and this is a big one. Humility was so despised in this day and time and so uncommon and so radical in this time period that the Greeks never even used their word for humility in a context of approval or admiration, but rather in a negative way. It was something that was looked so down upon. In fact, the great preacher John Wesley observed and stated that neither the Romans nor the Greeks even had a word for humility in a positive way because the concept was so foreign to their way of thinking. They had no way to describe it. John MacArthur says, Humility is the most foundational Christian virtue, and we cannot even begin to please God without humility. But the thing about humility is, it's incredibly difficult for humans to hold on to. It's a slippery thing for us to grasp. I mean, imagine the person who walks into a room, and they proudly boast to you and declare how humble they are. Right, One person said, humility is a virtue to be highly sought but never claimed because once you claim it, it's forfeited. See, there is only one person who has ever lived among us who has been able to live perfectly humble, and that is Jesus Christ. He was the only one who could absolutely claim humility for himself. In fact, he did so in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, telling us to take my yoke upon you for I am gentle and humble in heart. And just as we were reminded this past Christmas season, Jesus came to earth as God. Jesus came to earth as God's son. Yet he was humility put on display for us to see. He was born in a stable. He was raised in a lowly family. He never owned anything, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. So if we are followers of Jesus Christ, if we are imitators of Christ, and Jesus walked in absolute humility while he was here on this earth, how much more so should we, as his followers, seek to imitate his humility? 1 John 2 reminds us that those who claim to follow him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So we may think to ourselves in our culture and say, well, we're so much better as a culture now, because, and we've advanced because we actually have a word for humility in our language, right? And we may have grown since those days, but yet for the most part in our culture, humility is still incredibly hard to find. See, the world exalts pride, not humility. And even still for today, the most part, humility is looked down upon as weakness and as not being normal. Now, what am I saying here? Am I saying that you can never claim that you're proud that you graduated high school or college or that you're proud that you got your dream job or whatever it may be? No, absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. And this is how I like to explain it to my kids. In baseball, the expectation when you hit a home run is what? You run around the bases and you celebrate and you say, Look at me. Look what I did. I won the game. I am awesome. And that's normal in sports today. That is the expectation but what humility looks like on display is hitting the home run and celebrating because you're excited, but saying and displaying, I can do nothing apart from Christ. Every accomplishment I have, everything that I have ever done, everything that has ever been accomplished through me, it's all because of Jesus. Jesus has done it all. So humility looks like giving the glory away to the one who deserves it, who is Jesus Christ. Because what's the opposite of humility? It's pride. The very first sin that we see in the Bible was pride. And every sin that we see after it in some form or fashion is an extension of pride. And if we don't give glory away in our accomplishments, then what becomes of them? Pride. Look at what I've done. We can become prideful in our abilities and our possessions and our education and our social status and our appearance and our knowledge and even in our religious accomplishments. But Scripture calls us to give glory away, to declare that apart from Christ, we can do nothing and he has done it all. I mean, think about this. A person can't even become a Christian without a sense of humility, can they? We have to admit that, hey, there's nothing within me that can save me. There is nothing good within me, but it's only God who is righteous enough and holy enough to save me. Matthew 18, 4 tells us that we must come with the humility of a child to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Humility of a child meaning like, I can't do it. God's got to do it. You have to be dependent upon him for everything. See, to be truly humble, we must know what we are not. We must know who Christ is, and we must know and understand the holiness of God. God is holy. He is perfection. He is good. He is the only one who has ever been holy and righteous and perfect and can do nothing wrong. But we have to understand that we are sinners And we are not holy. And this creates a problem because it separates us from the God who loves us and created us. And Jesus is the only solution. We have to understand the holiness of God. See, we understand that Jesus is the only measure of perfection. We understand like we see in Isaiah 6.3. And it says, And one called to the other and says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, 5 says, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, only when we understand and grasp the holiness of God can we walk in humility. Our humility comes from a proper understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of ourselves. The first characteristic of a worthy walk is humility. The second characteristic of the worthy walk is with gentleness. Now, when we're humble, it always produces gentleness or meekness. Meekness is one of the telltale signs of true humility. You can't be meek without humility, and you can't be meek with pride. See, pride is not the... See, pride not only is the killer of humility, but it's also the killer of the gentleness or meekness that we're called to walk in. There's an old saying that says meekness is not weakness. And this is true because we understand that meekness is a characteristic of being gentle and the willingness to suffer and endure instead of respond. An attitude of love amidst suffering. See, as new creations, we are able to maintain our unity through our conduct. And our conduct involves Being gentle with one another or meekness. One person said, biblical meekness or gentleness is power under the control of God. Jesus, when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was about to be arrested, Peter wanted to defend him. And so he cut off the ear of the one that came to arrest Jesus. And Jesus did what? He healed the man's ear. Think about that. If Jesus had the power to heal this man... Don't you think he had the power to evade his arrest? Absolutely. But yet he did not. He displayed power under control. However, this does not mean that there's not a time for righteous anger or action when God's word or name is slandered. See, we are to be humble and gentle with one another. But when division seeks to disrupt the displaying of the unity in the body, we make every effort to maintain the visibility of the unity of the body. So the first two characteristics of the worthy walk are humility and gentleness. And then third characteristic of the worthy walk is patience, which also comes from having humility and gentleness. The word used here literally means long-tempered or like we see in the KJV it's translated as long suffering. The text we looked at last week, Colossians 1:11, tags on being patient or being long suffering with joy. Man, that's hard, isn't it? It's hard to be long-suffering and be joyful about it, but yet we understand that true joy, having joy, is having a confident assurance in where our hope is and where our home is. And that gives us the ability to suffer well or to endure well. And Paul knew what it was to suffer well with patience, and we should too as new creations suffer well with a confident assurance of where our hope and home are that gives us joy even amidst our suffering. See, when we give way to the sovereignty of God, when we accept that God has a plan for everything and he's in control of all things, then we're able to be patient with humility and meekness, with joy and confident assurance, even in the most difficult and trying times. Hear me, brother and sister, God sees us in our hurting. God sees us in our long suffering, no matter how long it is. And God has not left us. And so we, as new creations, are able to practice long-suffering with joy. So the first three characteristics of the worthy walk are humility and gentleness and patience. And the fourth characteristic of the worthy walk is bearing with one another in love. I really like the way the New Living Translation put it here. It says, Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. I love that because, man, are we full of faults. The literal translation here is putting up with one another in love. But That's hard, isn't it? Because we're all full of faults and we have plenty of faults. We all have personality traits that get on each other's nerves, don't they? We have ticks and we have rhythms and they disrupt each other. And as a family, it's hard to put up with one another and to make allowance for each other's faults. But yet we're able to do it because we have love, which is an action, right? I mean, even in our regular families, right? We just sometimes have to come to the point of where, hey, I'm just going to put up with you because I love you, right? Like, hey, you got your faults, I got my faults, but I'm just going to put up with you because we love each other and we have love in our hearts, but that's what we do. We give understanding and we give grace and we give honor to one another. Why? Because when we love one another, we take the action serious of love being an action and not just being a word. 1 Peter 4, 8 tells us, hey, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. See, when we love others, it doesn't mean that their faults don't exist. It doesn't mean that the crazy uncle who drives us all crazy is going to cease being a crazy uncle, but rather it means that we're able to look past their faults and to put up with one another because we love one another. Again, just like we said with gentleness, that doesn't mean that there's never a time that... We don't come together for righteous action against each other's faults when God's word or his name is being abused or slandered. No, we stand for God's word and for his name against it being slandered. And when our faults move past faults and they cross over to division being displayed and disruption to the unity of the body being put on display, then we lovingly and we graciously correct and point back to the worthy walk that we're all called to. So the first four characteristics of the worthy walk are humility, humility, And gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. Finally, the fifth characteristic of the worthy walk is eager to maintain the unity. And this is the heart of the matter that Paul's been getting at this entire time. The ultimate outcome of our humility and our gentleness and our patience and our bearing with one another in love is that we make every effort eagerly to maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We're to make every effort. Well, how are we to put forward effort? Well, Paul's just laid it out for us through the first four characteristics of a new creation that he's just given us. We make every effort through having our lives imitate Jesus Christ. And the point, the heart of what Paul is saying here is that we maintain the unity of the body of Christ. The unity of the body of Christ is nothing that's dependent upon us. The unity, we'll see this in just a few verses, it's already been bought. It's already been established. Our oneness has already been established through Jesus Christ. But we are to maintain its visibility. And we do this through our humility with one another. We do this through being gentle with one another, through being patient with one another, through loving each other in spite of our faults, and then finally through being peaceable with one another. And this takes work. I mean, the word chosen here is to maintain. Think about some of the things that we have to maintain today. For some of us in West Texas, for whatever reason, we really like our yards and gardens, right? And in West Texas, it takes a lot of work to maintain our yards and plants because we don't get a lot of rain. So you have to water them. You have to prune them. You have to mow them. You have to fertilize them. Sometimes you even have to put them under shade because we get so much sun. You have to maintain them. For some of us, like me, you like to smoke meat. And you have to maintain a constant temperature, either by using real wood or, if you cheat like me, by using pellets and then setting it at a temperature, right? But you have to trim the meat. You have to season and you have to inject the meat. You have to wrap it at a certain temperature and then maintain it at a certain temperature in order to serve it to keep somebody from getting sick. For some of us, we like cars or maybe you don't even like cars, but you still have to maintain them, right? Like, you got to make sure you got some tread on your tires. You got to make sure the tires have air in them, that the oil is changed, that the belts are good, that the hoses are good, that there's antifreeze in your car. It takes a lot of work to maintain a vehicle. And for all of us, we have to maintain our character. And that takes work and it takes intentional effort. See, to maintain something, it takes work and it takes intentional attention. And Paul is telling here us here to maintain the visibility of the unity of the body, to walk worthy as a set-apart people to the calling to which we have been called together. And it takes work and it takes intentional attention. So therefore, church, let us walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Let us walk in humility, church. and Let us walk in gentleness with one another. Let us walk in patience with one another. Let's walk in love with one another despite of our faults and let's walk in peace with one another why so that we can fight to make every effort to maintain the visibility of the unity of the body of Jesus Christ so the first way that Paul tells us to maintain the unity we are called to is through our conduct the second way And the final way that we'll look at today that Paul tells us to maintain the unity we are called to is through maintaining its visibility. Look at verses 4 through 6. It says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, And in all. Paul continues here in verses four through six, reminding believers why it is that we have unity. It's because of our oneness that we have through Jesus Christ. I say often as we gather, we're not united here by our race, we're not united here by our language or by our country of origin or by the amount of money that we have or don't have, but we are gathered here united solely by our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. And see, it's our confession that Jesus is Lord that unites us as brothers and sisters. And Paul is making this exact statement here. He's saying that there is only one body of believers who is the church. And it's made up and it's composed of, of everyone who has ever or will ever trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. This means in heaven there's not going to be a Texas section. There's not going to be an American section. There's not going to be a Gentile section. No Jewish section. No catfish eating section. No taco eating section. No male or female section, no slave or free section, but there is only one body and one spirit, and we are united under our one common confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is one body because there is only one spirit who unites us, the Holy Spirit, who is possessed by every believer who has ever believed in Jesus Christ, and he is our unifier. First Peter showed us how we, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house which is inhabited by the Holy Spirit. See, as believers, we are individual temples of the Holy Spirit like we see in 1 Corinthians. However, we are being fit together and we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit like we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. See, the Spirit is the guarantor of our salvation, but He's also the unifier of our calling and our common confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we are diverse as a church, and we have different gifts, and we have different ministries, and different hobbies, and different ways that we serve, but yet we only have one calling, and there is unity amidst our diversity. So in verse 4, we see that there is one body because there's one spirit and there is one hope that belongs to our one calling. And then in verse 5, Paul continues saying, Just as we are one body through one spirit and one hope, also there is but one Lord. In other words, Paul's saying here like he did in Romans 10, uh, 12, that there is salvation in no one else, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing His riches on all who call upon them." There is only one Lord, and He is for all people. And it is the one Lord whom we all confess His lordship that unites us believers. Further, there is but one faith. There is only one belief that we hold to that is revealed through God's Word. It is our faith in God's Word that unites us as believers in Jesus Christ. Further, there is but one baptism among believers. It's our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that causes us, through baptism to outwardly display this confession publicly through the ordinance of baptism. We know this. We know that there's nothing magical about the baptism. There's no magical water. It's simply Odessa water, or if you're in Midland, borrowed Odessa water. And then we throw some chlorine in it, hopefully... But what it is, what baptism is, is obedience to the command of God to publicly declare through an action to our church family that we are dead to our old self and we are clean, washed clean to walk in the newness of life. And therefore, we have unity through our one baptism that we are all baptized into. See, our unity put on display and made visible through the oneness that exists in Jesus Christ. And there is one hope. Belonging to our Christian calling. One faith and one baptism because there is only one Lord whom we all as believers are clinging to. John Piper put it this way. I love the way he put it this He said, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one Father. This is the objective foundation of our diligent efforts to preserve the unity of the Spirit. And this is not a fragile or an ultimately vulnerable thing. It rests on the oneness of God, the oneness of faith, the oneness of baptism, the oneness of the body. And those things are one, no matter what you or I do. They are fixed realities, and our task is to walk worthily in them. Finally, Paul says in verse 6 that there is one God and Father over all who is through all and in all. This is the basic confession that we've seen since the Shema in Deuteronomy 6.4 where the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And we see this develop throughout the New Testament as we come to understand that the one God is three persons and Father and Son and Holy Spirit. So Paul is affirming here that yes, there is one body and one spirit and one hope and one Lord and one faith and one baptism and it is through one God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who is over all and in all. Paul's main point in verses 4 through 6 is this. Our unity is put on display and made visible through the oneness that exists in believers who make up the church. Now, I love sports. Uh, That's no secret. I talk about them a lot. I love to watch sports and I love the camaraderie that exists in sports. I love the highs. I love the lows. I love the unpredictability of who's going to win in the end and the things that can happen in the last 20 seconds of a football game just blow my mind. So, of course, last week, I was watching the NFL Monday night football game between the Bengals with former LSU quarterback Joe Burrow, go Tigers, and the Bills on Monday night. And if you've been on social media or you've watched the news or you've talked to anybody since Monday night, you know that the unthinkable occurred in that football game, something that's never occurred in the history of the NFL. 24-year-old Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills was hit so hard in a collision that it caused him to go into cardiac arrest. His heart literally stopped, something that has a a one-in-a-million chance of occurring, and it played out on live television for the world to see. I, like the rest of the world, was glued to the television to see how this unprecedented situation would play out. The game was temporarily suspended with players given five minutes to warm up, and to resume play after their teammate's heart literally stopped and then they observed CPR being administered. However, something crazy happened. The players, instead of coming back on the field to warm up with their five minutes given, instead they gathered on the field in a circle and they began to pray. And eventually, prayers from both teams joined together in one locker room to pray for DeMar Hamlin. And eventually the game was canceled, and with the anchors on live TV voicing prayers to God in Jesus' name on live television. We haven't seen anything like that play out in the United States in a really long time. And in this, during this game that's idolized, that limitless money is thrown to, in this moment it was dismissed as simply a game by those who idolize it and financially support it. And there were quotes over and over of how there's a brotherhood shared. And no matter how hard they compete on the field, there is a brotherhood shared between players. And the players and former players talked about how meaningless the game was in this moment. And they didn't care about talking about when the game would be played or not played, but they only cared about their teammate and their fellow player. And that was sports, Christian, church. How much more so should our love and care be for our actual brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. We are unified through a common confession. We have a common calling. We are one body because there is one spirit. We have one hope and one faith and one baptism because there is Lord overall. all, one Lord overall. And listen, if the darkness of this world displays temporary unity through tragedy, how much more so should we who know the author of life put on display and make visible the unity that exists through our oneness as believers of Jesus Christ? So through verse 1, we were reminded of our calling. To walk worthy as one set apart people. In verses 2-3, through we saw that our calling is to maintain our Christian unity through the charity of our conduct. And then in verses 4 through 6, we saw that our calling is to maintain the visibility of our Christian unity. So what does this have to do with the vision for Mission Dorado Baptist Church? Well, the first part of the vision I believe God has called us to be as a church is to be a unified church who displays their unity for a watching world to see. And church, I will be the first to admit that this is hard. It's hard to remember our unity that we have through our oneness, that we have in our common father and common confession through one spirit, one hope, one faith, one baptism, and one Lord. It's hard to remember that. Why? Because we are sinful human beings. And we struggle with being humble. and We struggle with being gentle and patient and loving and peaceable. But yet, we have been called to look different than the world, haven't we? We've been called to be holy, to be set apart like we see in 1 Peter 1.13. And this is hard. I'm not saying it's not. It's hard because we're different people filled with different ideas and different ways of thinking and different plans and different backgrounds. It is easy, just like the rest of society, to only focus on what it is that separates us. It is easy to focus on having different ideas of how we would do things. It is easy to focus on what makes us different from one another. But what Paul is saying here in these first six verses is remember your oneness. Remember the unity that you have been gifted in the body of Jesus Christ and allow your calling to drive your charity and your charity to be driven by your oneness. See, we have an incredible, indestructible unity that is found in Jesus Christ alone. In fact, Paul's argument here is that our unity is enriched by our diversity, and we'll see more on that next week. But for today, church, the simple vision from this message that I would like us to take from this part one is that we would be a unified church who displays their unity for a watching world to see. Just real quick, a few observations that will help us in this pursuit of unity. first observation is this. Our Christian walk is not a one-day-of-the-week event. Think about that. Oftentimes it's easy to partition our lives. We have our work lives, we have our home life, we have our social life, we have our church lives. However, what Paul is saying here is that when you are called out of the darkness into the light, it changes every aspect of your life. And you don't just have a church life as a partition of your life, but you have a Christian worldview that shapes and, and every other aspect of your life. Think about it, if you only managed your garden once a week, or if you only sought to manage your dishes or your laundry once a week, it wouldn't go well for most of us. See, for us to be a unified church who displays our unity to a watching world to see, we must be eager to maintain the visibility of the unity of the body. And not just once a week, but as an ongoing responsibility. Second observation is this, is how we treat one another matters. Not just when we're treated kindly not just when things go exactly the way that we desire it to go, not just when things are easy, but part of our Christian character is how we treat others in the difficult times as well as the good times. See, for us to be a unified church who displays our unity, for a watching world to see, it matters how we treat one another. A last observation is this. Our unity takes work to maintain its visibility. Paul talks about maintaining our unity. And to maintain something, it takes work. It takes intentional attention. It doesn't involve us just showing up when there's something that we desire to be at or something that benefits us, but it involves us giving intentional attention and working towards maintaining the visibility of the unity of the body of Jesus Christ that we have through our common confession. And we'll dig into what that calls us to specifically next week. But for today, our big idea is this. New creations display their unity through their actions. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Believer in Jesus Christ in this room today, God sees you. I don't know how your year has gone or how your last year has gone, but today I want to ask you this, believer. Today, won't you pray for the unity of the body of Mission Dorado that it's displayed? This world doesn't see unity very often. Oftentimes, even when it sees the church, it sees the exact opposite displayed. Would you pray that God would protect the visibility of the unity of the body of Mission Dorado so that it may be displayed for a watching world? My second ask of you believer in the room today and church member, won't you commit to be a part of the unity of the body? Committing to be a part through the charity of your conduct and through displaying the unity that is found in our oneness in Jesus Christ. Church, let's display our unity and oneness for a watching world to see. Maybe you're here today and... You didn't know that churches are called to be unified. Maybe you're here today and you didn't know that there was unity offered through Jesus Christ and that we have this unbreakable unity. Maybe for the first time today, you've heard something that just tickled your ears and and you heard something about the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, I want you to know that you are loved, that you are wanted. In fact, I want to tell you real quickly how much God loves you. There is a God that we've talked about who is holy He created everything that we can see and we can touch and we can feel. And God is holy. That means he's set apart. He's unlike anything else or anyone else. And because he is holy, that means he's never done anything wrong, nor can he do anything wrong. And because he's holy, he can't be associated with sin. Yet every human that has ever lived, you have and I have, we've all stolen or lied or cheated or lusted. We've done something against God's law. And that makes us a sinner and that creates a problem. Because a holy God cannot be associated with sin and sinners. Not because God hates us, but because his character won't allow him to be associated with sin. And therefore, as sinful humans, we are separated in this life and the next from the God who created us. But I want to tell you some good news today. God loves you. God loves you so much that he made a way that you can be reunited with him for all of eternity in a real place called heaven. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to earth as a baby, being fully God and fully man. And he lived a perfect, sinless life here on earth. But yet he went to a cross and he died for your sins and my sins. And then three days later, he defeated sin and death when he rose from the grave. So today, you can be forgiven and saved. You can be rescued from your separation from a God who loves you and created you. So today, won't you turn from your sins? Won't you believe in Jesus Christ and won't you follow him the rest of your days? Today, if you want to have that identity of forgiveness and that new life in Jesus Christ, when we sing and I go down front in a few moments, won't you come and won't you talk to me? You can come talk to me after the service and I can help you cry out to God for the first time for, to God for forgiveness and salvation. Whatever it is that we need to do, church, I want you to know the altar is open and after I pray and we sing, I want to invite you to do business with the Lord today. Church, I love you so much.